Hey everybody, welcome back to Voice Spark Live, uh, the greatest show on turf. No, I'm just uh, the greatest show on the airwaves of uh, your podcast and ours. And uh, my intro was kind of sloshed a little bit because I'm having a trolley, Wildberry. So uh, there you go. Is it, is um, it the, the, the wild berry is that extra, the wild is the extra bit that gets you there, right? Yes. <laughs> if it was just berry, just a berry truly, right. it might have been okay, but mixed in with the wildness, you know, so. You gotta, you gotta watch it, man, with the, the wild. You do, you do. <laughs> so, um, so, so anyhow, um, I wanted to go ahead and uh, do the little round table like we always do, especially for voice first news. Who wants to go first? I'm feeling a little wild. I'm not going to pick who wants to, who wants to do it. <laughs> I can start off. <laughs> okay, go, go ahead, Emily. So uh, there are a couple things this week. Um, first one is I was part of a Sonic multicast which Ooh. is really cool because um, the first episode was just released. Um, it's about 15 to 20 people, I think, in the voice world. Um, and we just each speak for two to three minutes on whatever's going on, or we might have a, a topic for the month. Um, mm -hmm. And next month, we're going to do like a, uh, someone's going to answer a question, and then every, each person is going to respond to the person before them. <laughs> so it'll be, it'll okay. be really cool. It's a cool format. So now that's, a, would... that's a podcast, right? Yes. So mm -hmm. where would, where would people go to find that? I think you can find it anywhere you get podcasts. And what's it called again? It's called uh, the Sonic multicast. Ooh. And okay. yeah, that was, uh, Ahmed was the one that put it together. So awesome. Ahmed from yeah. Whitlingo. Yes. From Whitlingo. Non-stop non <laughs> non that guy. Non-stop. I know. Is there, is there any highlight, any highlights from uh, this past week's show that people can look forward to? Kind of the things that pique your interest? Um, yeah. I mean, there's a whole broad bunch I mean, of sure topics. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think everything will be really interesting and they have mm -hmm. some of the best people on there. So, um, it's, it's really cool. Um, and my other piece of news is that, uh, there's an article on voicebot.ai, and uh, it looks like Google's planning to launch quick phrase commands, which means you won't have to use a wake word. Um, so I'm curious to know actually how this is going to be implemented. Yeah. And um, it seems like users can choose what's active when. Mm. Mm. That to me seems like a lot to manage. <laughs> Right? Just depending on what you're yeah. trying to accomplish. and But, I mean, that could be really cool. And the other thing that I'm curious about is, is it always, I guess if you have it active, is it always listening? So mm. that's another. Yeah, you know. because, you know, um, whatever phrase you come up with to trigger these other things, that's going to have to be active in the background. She's going to have to be listening for that and right. also like, okay, Google. Mm -hmm. So... You know, that's kind of dicey, right? Right. A little bit, a yeah. little bit. Yeah. But I mean, it's not, it's not, there's nothing that we haven't like heard of or, or, you know, somewhat experienced, you know, on, on the A-lady side of things, you know, always listening right. more or less. I mean, but it, it's interesting. Uh, you think uh, Kevin Durant will ever be able to get his uh, Yo Google uh, kind of uh, wait, wait, wait. wait for <laughs> Yo Google? <laughs> That's so funny. Yo, Google. Remember that, Yo, remember that commercial for, for, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that should be an option. That would be cool as hell. That Google. would be really cool. 
yo, come on, Google, hey. <laughs> yeah, there's, another, there's, cool. another great, there's another great clip on YouTube. I don't know if you, you all seen this one. It's an uh, Italian grandmother trying to uh, use uh, uh, Google Home. Uh, mm. she, can't, she can't get the word Google right. She calls it Google. Google. <laughs> and oh, it no. is the funniest probably minute and a half of, of, of watching someone try to use a voice assistant ever, I think. Oh. Um, but, <laughs> I'll send it to you guys. I'll put it out there. I'll tweet it out to everybody, too, because it is amazing. Uh, but fun one. Very fun one. That's cool. That's cool, Emily. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to see, uh, catching that, that uh, the, the podcast that Mr. Bouzine put together and that you're on, and uh, I'm really excited for that. That should be really cool. And then this this one's really cool, too, this, this article you came up with. Um, my article wasn't so great, but uh, pretty interesting in, in light of uh, Kanye's new release, which is uh, the Donda album or whatever, that you get like the first minute and a half is, is just someone saying Donda, Donda, Donda over again. He came out with a smart se- a smart speaker, which is wild. I think it's called a Donda Stem. And oh, basically, wow. <clears throat> it's not voice enabled, but it, it's kind of neat how they, they it, you know, we, we kind of go with, with the hardware. We talk about the hardware a little bit, but it's a Bluetooth speaker, but also like you can customize beats on it. Oh, wow. And create like your own kind of like basically split his tracks apart and separate them and then and then recreate uh, songs right on the spot, which is kind of interesting, too. So yeah, that's, wild. that's really awesome. And you can it's do that wild. all from the device. Yeah. So it's about 200 bucks. Oh. Um, yeah. You can control vocals, <laughs> drums, bass, samples, isolate parts of his songs that are already preloaded on there. Oh, but and oh. you can also just play other tracks, other MP3s and stuff like that. That's great uh, marketing. It's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> I thought it was really, really kind of interesting for a hardware piece. Um, maybe you could probably make his album better than he did because if anyone's listening to that, <laughs> it's interesting, man. It's a tough sell. <laughs> huh? It's a tough What's sell. That? It's not the old Kanye. <sighs> It's definitely not uh, the the college dropout. Not the not the Kanye you know, you, you know and love, but uh, it's interesting. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> Kanye, twenty twenty four. Yay! Hey Sam, maybe that should be the wake word. I don't know. You know. <laughs> hey Sam. <laughs> hey Sam. Hey Sam. Sam. Oh, hey. Fam. <laughs> oh man. I don't anyway, know what's going on? I can't hear it all tonight. Um, it's the Wildberry man. It's the Wildberry. It is. Um, it's, it's definitely, uh, you know, slowing me down a bit, but anyhow, for me, um, not much going on, uh, just kind of got settled back in to, uh, things we were out of town for a little bit. So, um, trying to, you know, rewrap up some, uh, um, some skill reviews that we have still on the, on the table and especially the, uh, the Google assistant one that we have called warrior lands, which I haven't forgot about. The only problem is, is that whenever we, whenever I do a Google review, I actually have to capture the screen because here's the, here's the shitty thing about Google, right? When you build something for Amazon Alexa, it's built on APL. And it's pretty much if there's a screen, like an actual screen besides a mobile device, it's going to work and it's going to be fully functional. You'll be able to press buttons. But in Google, if you do not specify what device you want it to run on, it will not run on said device. So Google Home, Uh, like a Google Home stick or whatever they call it, it won't run on that. So uh, you're kind of like pissing in the wind a little bit. So then I have to go, I have to stand, stand next to the device, play it, you know, the camera's moving. It looks like, you know, I'm trying to film the Blair Witch Project thing, you know, <laughs> and play with my Google Home. And it sucks. It's not, as, you know, it's not as smooth. So I got to be in the proper right. mood for it. Like I've got to have, right. 
I got to be ready to go to do one of those reviews. Hey, what, Nick? We we get you a tripod. You know, we get you some 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 slick uh, camera equipment. You know, you'll yeah, be, you'll, be, you'll, you'll be ready to go, man. You'll be ready to go. <laughs> I appreciate the Blair Witch motif. Like, as you know, it's <laughs> maybe it's real. I don't. I'm not sure. And it's kind of scary and creepy. But uh, yeah, maybe we just get you a tripod and uh, we'll, we'll hook you up, man. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I wanted to point out is that the Sparkies are coming up. Sparkies are That's right. Right. The third week in November, so right around that Thanksgiving time frame. Why? Because we are thankful for the developers out there. That's why. Mm-hmm. That's, why. That's right. And um, Paul Cutsinger, yeah, and Paul Cutsinger on LinkedIn actually reshared one of my uh, posts uh, requesting skill previews from people. So I was really, uh, I was really pumped about that. I reached back out. I was like, "Hey, thanks a lot." And he was like, great stuff with a thumbs up. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, cool. That's awesome. Thank you. How many <laughs> skills do we have or how many skills actions do um, we have so far? I think there's, uh, well, like I said before, there's like 32-ish that okay. have made the cut. And then the way it'll work is we'll get together probably in October-ish. Great. Cut it down. And then from there, um, do the top 20 like we did before. Notify all the publishers. Hey, you're in the top 20. Now you got to get people to vote for you. And based on, you know, our curriculum and all that other stuff, your score, it'll determine if you win or not. And then awesome. hopefully, hopefully people will tune in. Um, uh, what was the other thing that I wanted to bring up real quick? Um, and it's, I can't believe it, man. I'm like, wild brain is just going. It's wild wild oh, wild um, man. And, and I'm going to, oh, I've got it. <laughs> Emily, mm-hmm. ben, have you seen my shorts? Oh. <laughs> I, I have, and uh, they're spectacular. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, I'm not talking about shorts you wear, everybody. I'm talking about shorts on YouTube. So in order to, like, bridge the gap between actual, like, skill reviews that we do that are about, you know, five to ten minutes long – I figured why not use YouTube shorts and we've seen an actual, like I would have to say a fairly good uh, engagement rate. Uh, We're averaging like anywhere from 250 views to a thousand views on some of our shorts. And given the, the the small community, I think that's actually pretty good. So uh, Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that, you know, as we pump out, more shorts, we get people interested and then we, you know, we bring more people into the fold and there you go. Yeah. The other thing that I liked about them is uh, the fact that all these people, if you, if you go on there and you look up shorts for Amazon Alexa, you see that um, there are these ones where it's like, Amazon Alexa said this to me last night. Can you believe it? And then it's like, I'm watching you. I'm, I'm part of the FBI. And, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, you know what they did. They went in and they created a blueprint. So I'm going to create one and then just have her at the end of saying something stupid, like I'm watching you at night while you sleep. You can also create one of these as well by creating your own blueprint. Because some of these get like a million views. Yeah. And and I'm thinking to myself, like who is, are people actually believing that the smart assistant is responding this way? Are they marking it just for kids? Like what is, you know, what gives? So 
Yeah, well, that'll be great to add to the to what we already have, and I think it'll enhance for sure everything. Visibility. There was a little note there. There was a little note there from uh, Hunter Gherkin. Uh, he was talking about the uh, the YouTube algorithm and favoring shorts. So uh, yeah, let's do it, man. Let's salute those shorts. Let's get them out there. So <laughs> <laughs> salute yes. those shorts. That's an old Nickelodeon <laughs> reference. <laughs> Listen, I mean, I might, I might, I think I'm starting to look like Donkey Mush lately, but you know, it's, it's what it is, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, we have an awesome guest tonight, and I'm so excited to talk to him. Yes. Who is it? So, we have Greg Bennett from Salesforce. <laughs> Would you like to bring him on? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Ta da. <laughs> Greg, thank you for joining us today. Um, Thanks for having me. You know, uh, we've heard nothing but great things about you. We've seen what you've done. And the other thing is, is that like you are like the Michael Jordan of conversational design. <laughs> In fact, one person went along, went as far as saying, Greg Bennett is the conversational designer. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like the only one? And he's like, yes, the only one. I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay. It was like, man, we must talk to him. So, uh, you know, wow. thank you for uh, responding to my LinkedIn request. And, course, uh, yeah. you know, it's a pleasure to have you here. So Emily, take it away. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what you do and um, yeah, what you do in sure. the conversation to that space. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I just want to thank you for your kind words, Nick. I mean, I, you know, that's a lot of praise and I'm super awkward about, you know, compliments, but uh, I, yeah, thanks a lot. And I, I think for me, like, I'm just really just grateful to be part of this field. I mean, and Emily, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but like, it's such a welcoming and like collaborative community. And honestly, like, that's how I like to work. I think like we all help each other and help each other grow. And I feel certainly mm -hmm. like, anything I know is certainly the sum of any encounter I've had with another conversation designer or a linguist, or even someone who's not even in the field of conversation design, who's taught me something about like a lens on conversation as just behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and so like my academic background is in linguistics. Mm -hmm. um, so I've always been super nerdy about all things language. Um, and I got into the field of sociolinguistics, particularly like the linguistics and sort of scientific analysis of how people use language in everyday uh, situations because I was dumped over IM chat in college. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and, wow. and, and, I, and I knew it was coming. So <laughs> it was interesting because I was like, I, I felt like this, this guy was getting more distant from me. And I was like, how do I, how is it that I can perceive someone as distant through chat. I can't see his face. I can't hear his voice. I don't see any mm -hmm. gestures, nothing. And it was like my first major heartbreak. And so I was like, all right, so some people write songs, which I did. Other people also analyze the shit out of it, which I also yep. did. And so <laughs> that really like became the focus of my work in undergrad and grad school. The idea that like what I was able to unpack from that experience through linguistics is that like, even if we're communicating over text, there's a way of communicating kind of like this baseline understanding of like, this is our standard mode of communication. So like mm -hmm. our standard in chat happened to be, we're not going to use formal punctuation. We're not going to put a period at the end of the sentence. We're not going to capitalize stuff, all of those things. 
and that shows like casualness and comfort and closeness. And as mm -hmm. soon as he started to put those things back in, a period at the end of the sentence, a capitalized first letter, the comma, the dash, all of those things, it it calls from this idea of like punctuation is proper and that's what you would use to publish books. Books are formal. Formal equals distance. I don't know you. And that's mm. how I could feel the distance nice. without an over uh, over chat. So got all of that through linguistics, finished uh, grad school studying how those phenomena kind of work also in Japanese. Right. Um, so in Japanese, there's about four writing systems, depending on who you talk to. So um, like the Chinese characters, the kanji, and then the two like, uh, you know, Japanese writing systems, hiragana and katakana, and then romaji, which is like the the like Western alphabet. And the way that you would communicate laughter in English is with LOL. In Japanese, you could do it using a bunch of different characters and <clears throat> depending on the character you use, you can convey that you're close to somebody or that you're teasing them or that you are putting them down. And so I ended up doing um, sort of a research paper on that. Um, and I thought like, okay, if I can understand how people communicate through chat and can convey and build relationships just through text alone in English or in Japanese, then why couldn't we teach a machine to do this? Like if we know mm -hmm. all this stuff from linguistics, like the whole point of UX and design is to leverage what we know about human behavior and then change that into like actionable items that we can essentially mm -hmm. put into reality and make an experience. And so that's always been my approach to conversation design. I started out at Microsoft as a researcher, but would like double as a conversation designer when we would have, whenever we'd have to do testing. I ended up at Salesforce as a researcher. And then eventually, our, I, after working on our Einstein Bot Builder product, and for a while we worked on voice, it got to the point where I was like, all right, so I'm doing research and conversation design, so y'all can like double my salary. Or we can figure <laughs> out. <laughs> we can figure out a job called demand. conversation design, yeah, so that way I can just do it. Um, and so we ended up uh, creating a role for me for conversation design, and I worked with the head of design at Salesforce to really scope out what the growth of the program would look like. Mm -hmm. um, and that growth felt pretty sort of like healthy and standard. Like, all right, so I'm going to grow the practice, make it more aware. We're going to grow the bots, product, etc. And then we acquired a little company called Slack. Mm. And that blew up all my plans. <laughs> because I was like, oh yeah, maybe in a couple of years, like it'll be big enough and like I can grow a team or whatever. And like I went away for the winter break, came back in January and they're like, so where's your team? And I was like, what? <laughs> well, let me, let me build, you know, um, I'm like, I got, you know, I've got kind of a pipeline. Let me start reaching out, et cetera. And that's, essentially how I started building the conversation design team at Salesforce mm -hmm. overnight cool. because of, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm super grateful. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, like the Slack acquisition certainly caught me by surprise. Um, and so to finally hear like, okay, well, we're putting Slack at the forefront of our experience. I'm like, you just bought a conversation company. So really you're putting conversation. And so like, I think at that point, that's when like it really thrust the practice into the, the spotlight right. Salesforce mm -hmm. and all of our, all of our products, all each of our products is called a cloud. So like sales cloud for the, you know, salesperson service cloud for a service agent, marketing cloud for a marketer, et cetera. 12 of them overnight. were like, we're going to make Slack apps. 
And I was like, oh, there's not 12 of me. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, I can help. I'm like, I can help a few of you, but like, whoa. Um, so that first month was a little difficult in the sense of like, I was trying to, you know, be able to hire and grow the team, but also support all the clouds at once. And right. now we've got a team of designers, each of whom are fully embedded into their cloud products and mm -hmm. building live in code conversational Slack apps. Wow. wow, that's awesome. Incredible. That's incredible. So since conversation is since conversation design is like a newer field, what do you look for when you hire people for your team? Oh, that's a um, yeah, I think like the main thing I actually look for is the point of view or the approach to language that is very like non-judgmental. Like mm -hmm. that's really the most important thing to me is that they can they can actively both defend every little piece of what they put in the conversation design. If mm -hmm. there's a period there, if there's an emoji here or whatever, <clears throat> that they can explain that, but right. without doing so in a way that somehow like makes a judgment call on how certain people talk or certain people don't talk. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is like, we as conversation designers, we're not here to say, well, there's a right and a wrong way to have conversation. Cause there's a bunch of different ways you can have conversation. Like, sure. I grew up here sure. in the Bay area and in the Bay Area, like when we're having face-to-face -face conversation or voice-based conversation, most people hold this principle of like only one voice should be heard at the time. If you're mm -hmm. talking at the same time as me, it's a power move. You're trying to steal the conversation away from me. Mm -hmm. um, that's not necessarily true, say, in New York City. Um, there was a study done by a linguist named Deborah Tannen who found that for some speakers in New York, for example, that if you're not talking at the same time as them, you're boring. <laughs> and so who's right? Who's right? Yeah. The person from New York City or the person from the Bay Area? It's not about like, oh, well, New York is the right way or California is the right way. It's like, no, that's just how you grew up talking. And yeah. if we only build the conversational experience and train the NLU to understand my way of talking, that mm -hmm. means we're not going to be able to understand when someone in New York overlaps with the bot or talks at the same time as it. And so that's really the main reason why when I'm hiring, I'm like, like, tell me what, like, tell me a little bit about your conversational approach. Tell me a little bit about how you think about different conversational styles, different variants of English, because we're not here to like, you know, sort of diminish any of that, but <laughs> celebrate it and meet the user where they are. Mm -hmm. Right. Wow. Nice. That's cool. Ben. Yeah, no, I, I I was just thinking, you know, Nick and I have a lot of these conversations, you know, regional dialects and whatnot, and yeah. the mannerisms that kind of go along with it and being able to identify those things and actually act on those at the same time. You know, I was talking with someone, yeah. uh, an, an English guy the other, a few days ago, and he's like, you know, sometimes like yeah. his, 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 where he's from originally in England, it just, it just doesn't translate to, to any of the, you know, to any uh, voice assistant at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. yep. I, I know where Nick and I are originally from, even though I'm in New York now. Uh, mm -hmm. There are so, a hell of a, a bunch of different colloquialisms. I know nobody would get to be able to like, actually <laughs> interpret those and actually have like those interactions and actually have those functions run at the end of the day. It's really, I'm really yeah. happy to hear that you're doing that. I, and I, I'm thinking about, you know, back to Salesforce and back to like, you know, mm -hmm. the end of the day, I mean, you're building all these different clouds and, you know, industry clouds, another one to that, to that, to that stack. Right. So mm -hmm. it's hyper-focused in specific industries, but, you know, mm -hmm. I'm guessing though, you're, you're building those out to those. And then also you're, you're putting the regional dialects or whatever regional dialects on top of it too, at the end of the day to have those proper interactions. Right. 
Yeah, I think so. I I have the designer who I have who's working on the industry space. I have two. Uh, one uh, because the second one just joined today, like oh, literally wow. an hour ago. <laughs> um, cool. So, but the uh, yeah, team going live updates. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, the main uh, designer who's been working on industries so far is Marlinda Galapon, um, and her background is actually in nursing. So she works on, you know, she certainly works on the health cloud product, but she's also worked on financial services. Um, and I think like the thing that she and I discuss both in our one-on-ones and in the design strategy sessions is like, what is that nuance and that very sort of nuanced difference between if you're having a discussion as it pertains to health, as opposed to finance, because they're both sensitive, but in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like when it comes to something regarding health, like maybe we would, we don't want to use so many emojis because emojis, they signify enthusiasm. Potentially they introduce a level of levity to the situation. And if you are interacting with a conversational bot for a health related reason, we don't really know like beforehand, unless we pull some like, yeah, I mean, honestly, like unless it's been previously reported and you're checking in about some existing issue that the system already knows about, like it's already been mm-hmm. put inside of Salesforce, we'd have no idea of knowing really what your issue is. And if mm-hmm. it's quite grave, then we don't want to be like, okay, thumbs up. And thumbs up. Like, right. That's not, that's not, you know, that's not helpful. And then when it comes to things like finance, it's like, well, you know, if our end user is say, um, you know, a financial advisor, like that again comes back to the whole idea of like conversational style. Like, where is that financial advisor based? To what extent mm-hmm. is the enthusiasm sort of constraint, uh, you know, a really crucial piece of how they operate? Um, do they expect, excuse me, a little bit more, a little bit less? Um, and that's the part where sort of, you know, user research comes in. And um, I think that's, a, you know, another key piece of like what Marlinda considers in her designs for that space. In mm-hmm. terms of like, and I, I sort of think about it on two axes. There's like, what the bot says and how the bot hears. Mm-hmm. And the bot should always say things in a way that is, again, like we, we, you know, we, as we think through the designs, like we need to consider like, who is it talking to? How is it gonna potentially be received? What are the different sort of cultural things involved with the industry or with the, you know, the region? But mm-hmm. when it comes to what the bot hears, the bot should be able to hear anybody anywhere and understand it. Like, just like you said, Ben, about your friend in England, like the person who is talking to the bot should not have to change the way that they have conversation to get the bot to work. And right right now that's just how the technology works. And I'm kind of like, that as a UX professional, that does not sit well with me. And I think Mm -hmm. part of where we like to address that is on the NLU side of things. Like, can we create and collect a robust enough data set across different right. variations of English, like su- like English from the southern states of the United States, or English uh, if you are um, a second language speaker of English, or um, African American vernacular English, Chicano English, all of these variants of English that usually aren't highly represented in these models, we are actively seeking the data to be able to then represent them. And so that way those users, again, don't have to change the way they talk to get it to work. Right. Hmm. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. It's got to, I mean, it's got to take a lot to, to do all of this, right? Like you've got to be, you know, like <laughs> running ragged 24 seven. It's like, even whenever I, you're I, off, you're on. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Cause like, uh, when I, 
it was it was funny because when I was in grad school, I definitely was like I was doing this kind of linguistic analysis and language analysis all the time to the point that it was like driving me nuts. Mm-hmm. And I remember I talked to a, a therapist about it at the time, and my therapist was like, "Oh yeah, you know, psychology students go through the same thing. Like they see it everywhere, and they're always psychoanalyzing people." And I was like, "Well, so how did you get over it?" And he was like, "Oh, I just don't do it when I'm not getting paid to do it." And I was like, "Ooh." I like, <laughs> I like that. And so like, when it comes to conversation design, I'm like, I mean, when I was a contractor, it was a lot easier um, for me to be like, it's 5pm. So I don't know what you mean by TTS. Um, but I will know again in 9am. Um, <laughs> as like, a you know, a salaried full time employee. It's, I think, like, I try to introduce some boundaries for myself to just like, you know, stay yeah. healthy, because burnout's a thing. And that's something I tell my designers, too. I'm like, listen, y'all, like, I can, I can help you with PTO, or I can help you with, you know, whatever mm-hmm. you need, but like, I cannot fix burnout. So yes. like, please rest. It makes such a difference. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you bring up a great point, too. Because one of the things you'll notice about people in general, especially whenever they get into this field, is that they have a passion for it, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. But even the passion can die or be burnt out if it's not carefully cultivated. So I think that's Absolutely. great. Now, how many people do you have on your team? Are you allowed to say, or how big is your team? Like where, where, where do you fall? Right now? Goodness. I have to actually think because there are team members joining, like as we speak, <laughs> uh, I think at the end of the month, we'll end up at seven. Cool. Oh, wow. Okay. Cool. Starting, starting from a team of one in January. So it's been yeah. like, you know what though? That's yeah. that's a good group of people to have. If you have seven yeah. people, I mean, I think I think you're you know you're that's a good core group of people, especially if you you know put yourself around, you know. Yeah. Hey, you could start a hockey team, right? Yeah. Right. Or or part of a World Cup soccer team. <laughs> Just hey, there's a, there's a super seven uh, size. It's a smaller field, so you can play. Oh yeah. Right okay. There. All right, there we go. <laughs> All right, so here we got uh, Emerson. He said, "What did he say?" He said, "That's a great uh, delineation between what the assistant understands via voice or via broader uh, AI context and how it how it responds to the user." And there's a, there's another part. What about a third factor? How it should change the response based on the truth. Um, correcting a commonly mispronounced word or challenging a uniformed and negative social position. I don't know, but if she tells me that I misspell or mispronounced a word, I'm, I think I might get pissed. <laughs> yes. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yes, I mean, exactly. Yeah. Go ahead. Go on. No, go ahead. I want to hear it. Because... Okay. So we, like me and Ben, we grew up, we grew up in the same part of Western Pennsylvania. One word that we have that is our word and we hold it true. And I think you know <laughs> the word I'm talking about. I could be wrong. Is it a Y word? It's a Y word. It's Yuns. Oh, right. yeah. Are Yuns guys going to the mall? Yes. Yuns guys going shopping tonight? It's Yuns. We're Yunsers. Yep. And, you know, if she's like, I believe you're trying to say, I would be like, listen, lady. 
I just wanted to tell me go down to pants and that and we'll have a good time. Like it's fine. Go down and pick up some, something in pants and that and we'll be good. No, that's a very inside Pittsburgh joke. But, uh, but yeah, no, Nick's, Nick's is a great point. It's like people would get mad about that. I would think at the end of yes. the day, it's like, no, I want to just like speak and just Greg to your earlier point, speak how I normally would speak around my friends and family, right? Be comfortable mm -hmm. and just to try to glean information from, you know, whatever database or whatever, you know, we're trying to get information from, right? At the end of the day, yeah, I'd be pissed yeah. too. <laughs> and especially cause it's in your home, right? Like it's like, right? all right, I'm in my home, right. I'm in my personal space and someone's telling me that I can't say yins, like, mm -mm, no, 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 I bought you machine right, right. Like, and, <laughs> and there's there's more to unpack there in terms of like the power dynamics between the machine and the user but i think like i completely agree like our job again is not to like police how mm -hmm. users talk our job is to accommodate it right um so there's another question about fallback replies and no. um how to handle helping a user get back on track with a voice app but not being too verbose or wordy right yeah what do you think about um, that I think it depends on what the like conversational trouble is. So like, mm -hmm. if it's a matter of like the voice assistant can't parse the word that the user is saying, and this might actually be tied with the other question that, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I forget, I can't remember the name of the previous person who asked the question, but like, Emerson. About, you know, Emerson. So like Emerson had also mentioned something about like, you know, if we need to help the user, like repeat their word or whatever, so we can continue to try and parse it. Um, I think there could be some relation there in the sense that like, this is drawing from like my language teaching days, but one of the best ways to be like, I'm not really sure what you said and say it really concisely in voice is to just say the same thing, but use an upward inflection at the end. So like, mm. if you said yins and I was like, yins, the immediate thing you would do then is like, you'd respond. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so in linguistics, like particularly like in language teaching, we call that recasting. So like that was a little trick that I would use whenever I would like uh, talk with like ESL students or whatever, and they would say something and I didn't quite get it. Or if I wanted to maybe, if they were searching for a word and you know they were potentially trying to do something else with it, all mm -hmm. you have to do is just add with that question or that rising inflection and you can do it in a word. Right. That That's cool. Makes total sense, total sense. So um, I have another question about uh, standardization. I feel yeah. like oh, yeah. um, since conversation design is <laughs> very new, <laughs> there doesn't seem to be a lot of standardization, especially mm. in, in voice. And so I was wondering what areas of standardization you think need the most improvement and how we can, I guess, work together <laughs> to, um, to get the field to the next level. Yeah, I think... Um... Honestly, if I'm, so again, if I'm thinking back on along that paradigm of like input and output, like mm -hmm. what does the bot understand versus what does the bot say? I'm actually more concerned with standardization around input than I am around with output. Like mm -hmm. if all the bots talk differently, okay, it's <clears> not great, but not necessarily, like it's not, it won't like, it doesn't preclude the user from at least being able to try something. But like, if yeah. we don't at least accept some sort of base level standard around like variety within a data set for training a natural language model, then there are going to be whole groups of users who just straight up cannot use the product. Like it becomes an right. accessibility issue. So I, I'd be really, I think, you know, in terms of like where the field I think could and should go, 
standards around like, what are like some thresholds? Like what, how do we know when we've reached a level of like, hey, this is enough data across this many variants of English for us to go forward mm -hmm. and say like, we don't have as critical of an access issue. So yeah. that's probably the one that comes to mind for me. Okay, cool. And in terms of like getting diverse data sets, how do you go about are you able to like do you have to do it manually or can you take from other what other people have done yes to both so okay. <laughs> um you can so there's this so because i'm you know a super nerd around linguistics and whatnot there's this database called the linguistics data consortium that comes mm -hmm. out of upenn um, and yeah, there you go. <laughs> and um, they, you can like essentially either register or purchase data sets from there. The challenge with those is that they're not necessarily always going to be annotated for what you need mm. for whatever it is you're training. So like mm. grad students in linguistics everywhere will use the LDC, the Linguistic Data Consortium to get data, but then they themselves will label it to mm. do their dissertation that takes two years. And I'm like, mm. uh, I've got like two weeks. So, <laughs> like, you know, it's it, so sometimes I'll be lucky and, and find a corpus that has either the chat data. There's actually a lot more corpora in the LDC for voice than there are for chat. And because right oh. now we're focusing mm. so much on chat, I don't use it quite as much, but there are so, like, if, you know, because this is voice, like, definitely check out the LDC. There's more likely to be something labeled in there. Yeah. And then if not, um, yeah, I, I put my sociolinguistic hat back on and I kind of start doing the data collection. So um, one class that we take in grad school uh, in sociolinguistics is called sociolinguistic field methods, mm -hmm. which is like it teaches you all of the sort of like ways of being able to elicit language out of people without like overly biasing them. So um, I went to grad school in Washington, D.C. Um, in Washington, D.C., there is a particular like variant that exists around the vowel O. So mm -hmm. like the goal of us trying to figure out like, okay, so like who has which variant and how do we know is to get them to say a word with O in it. And mm -hmm. so I had that assignment and I was like, okay, I'm gonna get somebody to say the word, you know, say a word with O in it. And I was like, I know. If I ask people for directions to a certain part of the DC metro area, you have to take the orange line to get there. <laughs> it's, like, it's, like a, it's like a game of uh, taboo. And so if I'd be like, oh, how do you get to Vienna? They'd be like, oh, take the orange line. And I'm like, ha, ah, you've got it. Or they'd be like, take the orange line. I'm like, oh, you've got the other one. Um, and so I think I, I, I draw on those uh, methods when I'm trying to collect intent uh, mm -hmm. or utterance data for an intent where I'm like, all right, so let's say you're trying to do something like this. Like, what would you say? Um, now give me three additional ways you would say that, three different ways you would do it. So that way mm -hmm. out of each participant, I get four responses for a single thing and that helps us to increase our variation. And then I make wow. extra sure to put in the prompt that I'm like, please do not, like spelling is not a thing. Do mm -hmm. not overcorrect your spelling. Do not like police yourself on your own language. Like talk to me like you would just talk because mm -hmm. If you're like, if you're trying to make yourself sound proper because I'm from a tech company or whatever, I'm like, that is really absolutely the polar opposite of what I need. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so oftentimes we'll, we'll work with vendors to help uh, collect that data. Um, but I think like, just sort of like on the whole, the thing that like, the reason why I kind of cringe when you ask that question is because I think there's the biggest piece of that whole effort that I think is still unsolved for 
is like, how do we do it in a way that doesn't exploit these communities? Because mm -hmm. these communities that are traditionally underrepresented also are historically, you know, marginalized in society. And so like, how do we make sure that we're not just like stealing from them for the sake of the product? Right. Um, and that's something that I, you know, continue to, you know, noodle on. And I, I bring that to everyone as sort of like an open question, like yeah. whatever folks thoughts. Well, I think of like, it's funny, it's funny you mentioned that because I think of like, you know, certain industries they have to, and I don't know if this is a bad thing or maybe an unethical thing, but, you know, it, it's one of those things where if you have to record phone conversations, for, specifically from yeah. a sp specific area or something like that, or if, they, if someone has to go through an IVR script or anything of that nature, yeah. those are sometimes, sometimes recorded at the same time too, to be able to get to that end result. And then eventually there's like this you know, a TPV, a third party verification where you have to speak through the process. If you can get them to mm -hmm. say the right things along the way and then yeah. parse those parse parse that information, maybe it might be if, especially if you're working with a customer, you're like, hey, by the way, we have a uh, hundred and twenty thousand recordings from this week alone. You know, like it might be yep. a, a faster way to be able to kind of get get those uh, local utterances and local local expressions. Uh, just a thought. Yeah. Yeah, consent is super important. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so I got a question. Yeah. In your home, do you have any voice-first devices? And if you do, what side of the fence are you on? Are you a Googler? Are you an A-Lady supporter? What are you? I have a device. Okay. That is that is in its box. <laughs> that is in its box? <laughs> I, my my follow-up question was going to be, what games are you playing on it? <laughs> the games that I'm the games that I'm playing are on my Nintendo Switch, um, but I yeah I have an A lady um, who is in uh, this cabinet right behind me, um, and I got it like as a gift. Um, and part of the reason why I like didn't use it like actively is just because. I don't know, as a linguist and like the whole like, oh, we have to go in the field and record people, but I have someone thing in my home that's listening to me all the time. I'm just kind of like, ooh, like <laughs> it's gonna listen to me while I'm in the shower. Like it's just I'm like, mm. like I have an open well, you floor don't keep plan. In the bathroom. No, but I have an I have an open I have an open floor plan and like the like it's just a loft. So like you hear everything in the apartment and I'm like, mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's sort of like my own thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I don't know if I've got necessarily a preference. I mean, I guess if I had to lean, I'd probably lean toward uh, the assistant, the Google assistant, because like I do most of my stuff in Google suite. Um, but yeah, that's probably where I'd lean. Well, so we, have, uh, oh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Emily. Uh, we have yeah. another question and okay. um, someone's asking, if we could get top secret tips or tricks when working with voice or linguistics, maybe <laughs> okay. one or two. <laughs> top secret. Oh, shoot. Um, goodness. It's a, it's a funny thing. Cause I'm like, I, I feel like I don't have any that are top secret. Like usually my tips and tricks are pretty public. Um, gosh, let me think. Honestly, the, the, the main tip and trick that comes to mind, and I, I don't consider it to be top secret, so if you've heard this before, sorry, um, but my secret ingredient when I'm doing conversation design to make it sound natural is a thing called discourse markers. And actually, the whole study of discourse markers came out of Philadelphia. So um, 
there was a linguist by the name of Debbie Schifrin, who was a student at the University of Pennsylvania. And she discovered this phenomenon called discourse markers, where like in conversation, you can show like how all of the pieces of information relate to each other um, with these just like little words like, oh, so, but, well, you know, yins. And so all of these words previously before her study were considered to be just like trash. People were like, oh, people don't know how they work. And like the linguistics community just called them discourse particles and didn't really have any kind of systematic way of thinking about what they do or what their function is. And what she did was she actually showed, this is actually how they function in conversation. If you use the word, oh, it's a marker that, that essentially signals to the other person, like I've made a realization, like there's information that I have like taken up and is filed away and understood. And there's power in that where if we want to create a conversation design that signals to the user, like in a Salesforce use case, for example, like if the user comes in, they're like, well, I don't really, I'm not sure, do I need a contact or I need a lead? And I, all I want to do is make sure that the company understands that I've got someone who wants to buy a thing from us. Then the bot could respond with something like, oh, you're looking for a lead. You can create a lead with blah, blah, blah. And that little O shows like just in that moment, like, oh, I like, I just did it. Like I, <laughs> I have, I have, I recognize what you're saying. Right. Um, and that's really powerful. And so I would say like, or even like the little word, so, mm -hmm. um, even if you're beginning and, and, you know, traditionally in, in, at least in the U.S., we're taught in school, like when you're giving a speech or when you're talking, you shouldn't use those words because they're distractions. Right. And I'm like, the real secret there is that they're actually the fundamental glue to conversation. It shows the other person, like, how is this related to what you've said before? Right. And so right. if I start a, if I start out something like, um, so I was looking for this thing and I actually couldn't find it. It essentially shows to the user, like, I did stuff. And what I'm saying to you is the result of stuff that I did. And it can signal to the other user, like a sense that like, oh, the bot has actually performing. It's not broken. It's just that right. I did stuff and the result wasn't ideal. So discourse markers, mm -hmm. that's my that's my secret sauce. That, that's great. That's cool. <laughs> I would have never thought about that. So that's great. That's yeah, really cool. It. Especially in voice. Love discourse markers in voice. So so shifting gears just a little yeah. bit. Uh, what would you say? Oh, we got another question. Oops. Oh, no, just a Thank you from <laughs> <laughs> the goat. <laughs> oh my um, so, um, uh, what would you have to say is your favorite movie of all time? Ooh, favorite movie of all time. One that you could just watch over and over again. The Truman Show. Really? Interesting. Yes. Huh. Okay. The Truman Show. The Truman Show. Yeah, that blew my mind, man. First time I saw that. Yeah, I love that movie. It was just it, like if I had, I mean, I could probably like really think about it and do some more deep analysis. But I'm like, you know, in the last two years, I think it's like especially being trapped at home or whatever. Yeah. There's something about that whole like mm. I'm confined to the space and I want to get out. That like there's yep. some yeah. I get a sense of relief in watching that movie. So. That well, you know, there was another movie that came out similar to that. Yeah. That kind of had the same uh, thing around the same time. You know which one I'm talking about? Yes. I can't remember the name, but yes. Ed TV. 
Yes, thank you. Yes. TV. Yep, with Matthew McConaughey, Woody Harrelson, and uh, Jenna Elfman. Okay. Man, I am. Man, yeah. I'm I'm running yeah. out Wildberry, man. Look out. Right. Right yeah, exactly. Yeah. Way back from outside of the <laughs> No, that, that actually focused a lot on the um the uh reality TV component. Yep. Yep. Which well, that was like know, yeah. That was kind of like right after like I mean, let's be honest, like the reality TV early nineties kind of was like the infancy yes. of it. And it was kind of coming into its own and they were I guess kind of exploring the dynamic of like what What's the bad stuff about it, or what? Yeah. The, what the downside, How far can right? we push this? Like, where? Where's yeah. the limit? <laughs> uh, there is no limit, clearly. <laughs> yeah, because uh, yeah. at the I mean, end of the at the end of that movie, they were recording like all of his family members. Mm-hmm. Like it was weird. It started, you know, it started to get kind of yeah. weird. But uh, but no, that was a good one too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Greg, sonically, what are you listening to? What's uh, what CDs? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. CDs. CDs. But, uh, hey, I have a yeah. CD what CDs do you get? Where's your CD? <laughs> no, I do. So I actually, I'm I'm old school in that. I'm like, I if I really like uh, uh, you know a, a piece of music, I have to have the physical copy. Right. And sometimes it's not enough just to have it in CD format. So like for example. I, you know, I grew up on, you know, the 80s where, so it's like, you know, Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, Madonna. And mm-hmm. I, I so, so deeply associate Whitney Houston's second album with my mom because she would play it on repeat in the car when I was younger and she had it on cassette tape. And so I was like, you know what? I've got the MP3s, but I want the tape. I want the vinyl album. And I was like, <laughs> okay, I'll get the CD too. Cause like my collection looks incomplete without it. So um, I, have, like, I have a library of music upstairs. Um, these days, I think what I listen to the most is, so I listen to a lot of Japanese music. Um, there is a whole sort of genre of Japanese pop called, oh goodness, I don't know what this is in English. Is it J-pop? <laughs> well, I guess that's <laughs> no. what eventually it turned into that, um, but it's actually from like, it's like j- popular Japanese music from like the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So like Whoa. old school Japanese pop, it's called Kyokyoku, which I don't know how to translate that into English. It's like, uh, just like, yeah, like popular kind of like Western influenced Japanese popular music. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that that's what I listen to a lot of these days. Um, there's also a genre called city pop. Um, so lots of folks are probably familiar with that because it got really popular, I'd say like in about 2008 outside of Japan. And that's like 80s style, like easy listening, slightly jazzy pop uh, mm. Japanese music. So, yeah, those are fun. Kind of like the Japanese version of Hall & Oates. Yeah, there's like or like, um, let's see, like... Uh, there's a little like there's a little bit of ja- like Janis Joplin in there, kind of an influence for some, and uh, like a little like some of them have a little bit of like a uh, what do you call it um, like a Carpenters, uh, the Carpenters oh, the car- influence as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, for one record, I was just like, this sounds familiar, and I looked up the producer, and I think the producer had worked with the Carpenters as well. So, oh wow, yeah, it's a it's a cool genre. I like it. Wow, very cool. That's cool. That's real cool. Em, what do you got? Okay, so I'm gonna gotta pivot back to <laughs> linguistics. I'm actually, I'm actually really curious on about track. It. I try to steer the boat. I'm like, hey, shiny I'm like, let's talk over about here. this obscure Japanese pop. <laughs> no, um, I'm just, I, just, I guess, kind of a two part question. One, um, what what skills from linguistics 
do you mm -hmm. use the most when you're designing conversations? Mm -hmm. And the second part, um, if I was, or well, I'm, I want to learn more about linguistics. Yeah. So where would be the best place to start, <laughs> I guess? Ooh, okay. Um, so I'll start with the first part of your question, like the mm -hmm. skills that I use from linguistics. And I mean, it sounds really simple, but honestly, it's pattern making. Like the whole, the whole like point of, and like the like whole like foundational piece of linguistics as a field of study is like just trying to recognize the patterns. It's all based on this really fundamental principle of, um, um, why am I blanking on this? Um, <laughs> and the more I think about it, the more I'm not going to remember. Um, but it's essentially, it's essentially, um, okay, it's on, it's based on this fundamental principle called markedness. And so what that essentially means is if something is unmarked, that's like this standard, um, you know, like everyday non-remarkable like version of a thing. And if there's a deviation from it, something that stands out that's marked. So like the, the way I usually explain this is like, I usually show a picture of a football stadium and all the seats are green, but there's one yellow seat in the middle and the green seats are unmarked because it's like, that's the standard, that's the baseline. The yellow mm -hmm. seat is marked. And as soon as something stands out, it causes humans to wonder like, well, so this has to mean something, right? Like, is it a <laughs> VIP seat? There's something special yeah. about it? Is it broken? Like, what is it? Um, and that's really like the fundamental like tool from linguistics of like what's standing out and why does it stand out? And what does that say about the baseline? <clears throat> um, and so I would say like, that's the whole like, uh, sort of technique that I use when it comes to conversation design is I'm like, what baseline are we trying to strike? And how do we create that baseline? And if we're deviating at any point in the conversation design, we better have a reason because that's mm -hmm, going right. to signal something to the user. Am I trying to signal to the user that, you know, you know, the bot is enthusiastic? Or am I trying to signal to the user that the bot is uh, maybe like without, if we can't say, for example, if we can't say the word sorry for legal reasons to the bot because it takes on too much, you know, responsibility as the company, mm -hmm. whatever. Um, what are ways that we can convey a sense of regret to the bot? Well, or to the user? Well, if the baseline, you know, experience is like super happy-go-lucky with emojis and exclamation points and stuff, we could probably tone it down, take the emoji out, put an ellipsis and say, you know, well, this did, you know, some, we can use a little bit of that drawback and that mm -hmm. sort of markedness mm -hmm. to stand out and signal to the user without actually having to say the word sorry, like, oh mm -hmm. no, dot, 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 as opposed to, I'm right. oh, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say like, that's really like the main uh, skill from linguistics that I use. Um, in terms of learning um, about linguistics, I would say, honestly, like when it pertains to conversation design, the book I like to, to recommend is called That's Not What I Meant. Okay. Ooh. That's not okay. what I meant by Deborah Tannen. Um, mm -hmm. And it's read, she wrote it specifically for non-linguists. So for like the okay. general public. Um, and I really love that book because like it, it really shows to anyone who, whether you're a linguist or not, the idea that like there's no one right way to do things in conversation. Mm -hmm. And we have a responsibility to understand like the full context behind how a person is talking and because it, it, it doesn't change maybe our initial emotional reaction, but it gives us at least a little bit of tooling to be able to say like, well, maybe this person isn't a total jerk. They just talk a little differently. 
Mm, yeah. Okay. And like the way that they talk goes completely against like the uh, ideologies that I was socialized to have about conversation growing up. Yep. But they're not like a total, like they're not the scum of the earth. They just talk mm. differently. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So we're so, reaching yeah, 55 minutes. Uh, ben, do you have a final question? I, I kind of too. What, what's something that you're really excited that you're kind of working on right now? They're like, hey, man, I'm just loving this, exactly that. And then uh, the question I ask for uh, to everyone is like, what's a question you want to put out there to the boys community? Ooh, okay. Uh, the thing that I'm working on that I'm the most excited about, honestly, is we're building a library of training data that has those different variants of English in it. So like, if someone at Salesforce is like, hey, we need to build a bot, we need to do it quickly, but you know, we're afraid we can't do the NLP part because it's a heavy lift. We're like, no problem. Pick from our library. Do you want it to be able to create a case? Okay, we pull the create a case corpus and we can give them data that also has representation from African-American vernacular English, Chicano English, English as a second language and Southern English. Um, and the reason why I'm excited about that is because I really think that's how we do the future of conversation at scale. Um, it's the kind of thing where I'm like, all right, my cross-functional stakeholders really don't have to put in a ton of effort. The user doesn't have to put in a ton of effort. My team had to put in a lot of effort, but it's worth it in the end because we saved those right. other, you know, those other stakeholders from having to do it on their own. Um, in terms of like a question I have for the voice community, I think I would say like, my main question is just like, what are your beliefs about conversation? Like, I think that's a question that everyone who works on voice should ask themselves. Because I think like in the field of UX, UX designers have like a strong muscle around like calling out their own assumptions about an experience mm -hmm. as they're doing that kind of design. I think we as a field in conversation design are still developing that muscle. So that's why my question to the field is like, what are your ideologies about conversation? Mm -hmm. If you can ask yourself that and write that down, those are your assumptions. And now how mm -hmm. do we counteract that a little bit? Because that makes it a more robust conversational mm -hmm. experience. Nice. Great. Nice. Emily, one final one. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, do you find it hard to advocate for diversity and inclusion? Or are you, do you feel you're able to kind of, do you have the capacity to, I guess, be able to, to advocate for it with um, Salesforce? I don't find it particularly difficult. I mean, we have uh, a culture of, you know, diversity and inclusion discussions, I think pretty openly. Mm -hmm. um, and we also have an office of ethical and humane use. So like, I feel a lot of support from that team. But honestly, the way that I usually frame it is from a business case. I'm like, look, all right, so here's all these people who have this variant of English. They cannot use our product. Are you sure you're okay with leaving all that money on the table? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yep. Like that's really how I frame it. Is I'm just like it's really just a business case. Like here's our total addressable market and what it could be if we yeah. got these variants included in the data. Um, right. And so it's you, not like anybody's telling me don't do it. Right. 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 Do you think it would improve if, as technology improves and we can like, <laughs> I guess, um, get more um, advanced in that department? <laughs> I think the experience certainly could improve. I think like the big challenge will be making sure like, hey, how do we collect the data in a way that isn't exploitative right, of those populations? Right. And like also making sure like how, you know, how do we really measure that threshold of like, 
variation and balance in the data sets. So like, I'm getting super nerdy here, but like, <laughs> I think that's, that's really like the main thing is like making sure like, you know, how can we track that in a way and also make sure to like continually monitor it. Like when it comes to mm -hmm. a conversational solution, you don't just set and forget it. Right. The more people talk to it, the more it continues to develop. And so like, if let's say for, for some reason, one particular variant within an intent or one intent comes out of balance, mm -hmm. then we have to figure out then how to balance it. Does that mean we add more data? Does it mean that we need to represent a different variant of English that we didn't think of yet? That's mm -hmm. really where I think um, it, it just means that we, I think, evolve as an industry, not just the technology, but like the way that we think about conversation and language as a practice. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So I have one final question. Okay. Have you subscribed to Voice Bark, <laughs> Alexa and more on YouTube? I have not. I very embarrassingly have not because I like live under a rock. <laughs> I well, listen I listen to records and CDs, Nick. Like <laughs> Well, here's the thing. I want to yes. help help me help you. By subscribing, <laughs> we'll be able to show you interesting and cool skills for you to try out on your Amazon Alexa device. There we go. I love it. Yes. I, I, will, I, I will plug her in uh, occasionally just for this. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, we'll, uh, we'll bounce you out here for a minute. If you can, uh, stay, uh, stay uh, online with us and we'll come back to you. We're just going to uh, bounce you out and say some nice things about you and close out the show. All right. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. Thank you. That was kind of that was awesome. Yeah. That was awesome. <laughs> uh, that, yeah, that's really really cool. So I'm I'm really happy that we were able to have that conversation, and you know I'm happy for us to uh, to get some insights of the way the uh, you know because whenever it comes down to it, nobody wants to see how the hot dogs made. But sometimes you do want to see how the hot dogs made. This one, it's like, you know, those Mr. Rogers trips where you would go to the factory floor and you'd be like, oh, man, this is so cool. Like, how, how, yep. how's this how's this made? <laughs> exactly that. This is exactly yep. that. That's what it was like. <laughs> so does anybody have any final thoughts or any comments or anything? Are we good to close it out? I, I think we're good to close it out. Awesome. And with that being said, here's the outro. Good night, everybody.